the U.S. labor landscape is changing, but in whose favor, management or workers? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. The story of the last several decades is one of a gradual weakening of labor unions and workers' bargaining power. Wages haven't been keeping pace with corporate profits and the strong economy. Job security is questionable. Automation is taking over tasks that were previously performed by humans, and a lot of manufacturing jobs have left the country. But certain developments, especially in the rise of social media, could serve to alter the balance of power between labor and management. Today, in the third of three episodes focusing on the state of American labor, I'm joined by Elliot Dinkin, president of Cowden Associates, Inc. We'll look at the recent wave of teacher strikes, which suggests that workers are taking a more confrontational approach to securing better pay, benefits, and working conditions. Could this trend affect workers in other sectors, such as logistics and the supply chain? How are employers influenced by the prospect of a recession? And what are the chances we could see some kind of a general strike by disgruntled workers in multiple industries? Here is my conversation with Elliot Dinkin. Elliot Dinkin, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Recently, we have experienced a number of teacher strikes across the country, and I'm wondering if there are any lessons to be learned that can be extrapolated and extended to other types of industries. Uh, How is this applicable to other industries, and what are we learning, and how is it indicating a possible change in the way that employers and labor get together, or don't get together for that matter, in negotiations? Well, it's an interesting time, if you think about it, if I had a contract that was in place for the last three to five years, for example, I probably missed out from a employee's perspective on some very, very good times from an employer, and I'm not suggesting necessarily school districts per se or other public institutions, but other types of employers, especially in like manufacturing, et cetera, who have had a great run-up in profits. And if you're a union member, you're set under a certain contract that guides the particulars about pay. And then even if there was profit sharing or something else that would have had bonuses, I wasn't getting a lot of the economic upticks that non-union employees were experiencing. Now we're coming up to negotiations and the employees are sitting there going, look, you had a great three or four years. We want our share at this point. The companies are getting a little nervous because they're saying, well, in the horizon, we see an economic downturn from this and we're concerned. So both sides are going to have to adapt to something different in the interim on sort of the non-public sector. I think what you'll see is that a lot of companies will be offering one-time sign-on bonuses or an agreement bonus, ratification bonus. What that does, it says I can use some of the favorable cash I have built up. I can make a one-time payment, but it doesn't stay into my wage base and increase my ongoing costs. 
So you're saying, in effect, that labor contracts cut both ways. Not only did they protect workers against job cuts and pay cuts, they also don't allow them to take raises during the course of the contract. Is that basically the situation that workers find themselves in? Yeah, unless there's some kind of built-in steps or some kind of other wage increase. But even if there was, they were given many years ago, and people were saying, well, that's kind of skimpy based on what your recent performance has been. So it does cut both ways. But during that time, you're suggesting that the non-union workers were getting more of an advantage from the economic boon than union workers were. And yet all we've heard recently is it is only just recently that we have started to see an uptick in wages. The early part of the recovery in this country did not reflect benefits that accrued to the workers. It mostly accrued to the employers. So that seems to be a recent trend. You might have seen more evidence of it because when they started to report real increases, I think what I would say some of the trickle down happened. But some of the other people at different levels of companies, some of the salaried and some of the higher level employees in engineering positions and other supervisories positions certainly got more, and it was some trickle down. It was a very tight labor market, so you saw a lot of entry-level wages really being higher than before. And that has some trickle-up effect, if you will, because when I increase wages at the particular, what I would say, the bottom end to attract, I have to increase those above. We had a tax law change that a lot of companies took advantage of and put more money into compensation and benefits. So yeah, it is more recent, but the timing is the same issue because I'm faced with this issue now. And again, I think you'll see some companies are a little nervous about the future. For example, General Motors is already planning some retrenchment, if you will, on redesign based on what they think the future is going to be as well, even though today their appearances are doing very well. So employers approach workers today and they say, rather than give you a steep permanent wage increase, because we're worried about the recession and what might happen in the coming months and years, we're going to give you something else in the form of, as you say, a recruitment fee or a one-time bonus or something like that. Do you expect that workers will accept that? No, they're going to resist it. And the reason they're going to resist it is they're going to say, well, they're not necessarily farther ahead down the road. It's very nice now to get an upfront payment. I don't have to work hours in the future. I understand all that. But then it disappears because it's what I say is not on the card. It doesn't become part of my wages. It doesn't become part of my wages for overtime, shift premiums, holiday pay, vacation pay. Again, it's in and out one time. Yes, it's better than nothing, but it's not what's going to make up for some of the ills of the past as far as not getting raises when things were tougher three to five years ago. So we can expect some problems in the future in negotiations as a result of that type of approach. Yeah, could. Now, the other thing I will tell you that, again, non-public sector, which offers by different rules, companies are also concerned largely about disruptions in flow to their customers. They really don't want work stoppages because they're concerned about their customers who really need inventory, and a lot of people are saying they want more just-in-time inventory, they're not going to hold a whole lot behind. So if I'm a company and I'm in a manufacturing standpoint, I'm not really ready to take a work stoppage. In fact, I don't want it for loss of a fear of a customer. So that's a balancing act that we don't want strikes. We don't want labor disputes because we want to have labor peace so our customers can count on us to produce the goods and services that we need on a recurring basis. So it's a little bit of a mixed bag. And because it's a tight labor market, just the whole issues of locking people out or people on strike and causing negative attention, the employers don't necessarily want a strike either. 
again, unless they're faced with some significant adverse economic situation where the alternative is what they really need. Unless they're going all out to try to break a union. Or do something that's drastic. They wanted to get rid of some kind of provision and they're willing to take a strike over it. I don't know if that sentiment exists like it used to. Again, customer loyalty, the customers are saying, look, I need the products. I, I can't afford to keep a lot of inventory here in the yard while you're working out your strike. I'm not going to order a whole bunch early like I might have years ago because I don't want to absorb those inventory costs anymore or holding costs. So it's a balancing act on the employer end also. And in the the labor, they understand that. The labor employees know that, and they do have some leverage from that perspective. Okay, so we have a new element in the mix now, and that is social media. What do you see as the impact of social media on labor negotiations? That's a great question. I think it's interesting because when you're in labor negotiations, they often say what goes on here shouldn't be repeated. It shouldn't be spread out in any kind of wide manner. I mean, often that didn't happen before all social media. People did it anyway as a means to communicate. So I think the social media makes it more prevalent and easier for a member on a bargaining committee, just to start with that, to be able to communicate with the constituents about the goings-on in negotiations without getting into nitty-gritty specifics that person A said this and this one said that. It can talk about topics and immediately disseminate that information And it also gives them immediate feedback. So they weren't sure what all their members were looking for. The social media will help them. Now, the other side is the employers probably are not using social media to report the impact and what's going on in labor negotiations because they're concerned about things like unfair labor practice charges and negative publicity. And he said, she said, they probably won't do that until maybe the very end if they're reaching some kind of a breaking point just to set the record straight from their perspective. So it won't be an ongoing type of dialogue. It is different. It's a whole new world about open communications and people post things and say things and before they might have resisted that just for that reason. Well, as you point out, that it has been an issue in the past accusing workers or employers of negotiating in the press. They'll make public statements, but this sounds like that situation on steroids because social media is so much more powerful and has so much more of a potential effect. So it's really an issue of degree more than anything else, right? Correct. You can set up the rules in advance and tell people not to do it, but who knows how this gets out there. Maybe they cite anonymous sources and some Twitter feed or something else. I'm not sure, but it, it happens. Let's face it that way. But with the power of social media, I wonder if workers think that they can rally others to their cause through that channel and thereby actually affect the collective bargaining negotiations by putting additional pressure on the employer to settle to their satisfaction. Is that a possibility? It is. I think anything they put pressure on or it could have the other effect also, a sort of antagonizing effect. We ask you not to do this and you've said this issue is important. It's now off the table because you repeated something incorrectly or you gave false hopes out there or something else like that. So it does cut both ways, as you can imagine. What we see today, people read those things and even get more upset. With the exception of a few select industries, it seems like what we have experienced in the last few decades is a steady decrease in the power of organized labor. And I'm wondering, does this affect the situation, what we're talking about here? Does this in any way affect that trend, or will we continue to see dwindling power of labor unions? I think labor unions still hold a lot of power and a lot of influence in a lot of major companies, even though their memberships may have declined a little bit. 
I still think now that with pattern bargaining and things like that, they could become very, very powerful and can encourage members and other organizations to organize and get together. It is a dwindling headcount, but I think they're still very powerful because, as I mentioned, one of the things they really control is the ability to make sure we deliver to our customers. And that can't be overlooked. This whole issue with pattern and everything else, even though the numbers are smaller in total, are still very, very powerful and very influential. We may not hear about them, see them about them as much, but I think they're still there. And when you make that point about the importance of delivering to your customers, I think what you're saying is that our area of coverage, the supply chain, is particularly susceptible to these trends because that's all about delivering to the customers. So logistics, warehousing, transportation, retail, all of those things are part of that package. So I guess you're suggesting, are you not, that the supply chain could be greatly affected by this? That's right. And again, I mentioned this concept of just-in-time inventory, this whole concept of supply chain management is so critical now. Again, people don't want to absorb inventory costs and other things, and it's a whole art slash science of how to manipulate it. And the last thing they want is somehow or somebody getting in the way. Don't forget, I need high-quality products delivered at a favorable price on time. So if I'm worried about quality because I may have not the right workers in it, if I'm thinking of replacing workers or whatever, I'm concerned about quality. I'm concerned, obviously, about price, but timeliness is so critical because it has that down-the-road, down-the-chain type of impact, which is significant, and people are very impatient with vendors. They'll move in a minute if they have to. One of the big issues out there, I guess you could describe this as the elephant in the room and with regard to labor policy, is that of the pension plan crisis. Now, I know it might be more of an issue in public versus non-public sectors. I don't know how you feel about that, but where does that figure in? Because we really do have some serious underfunded pensions out there, and I don't know how anybody, if anyone, really has a solution to that. Yeah, so there's a whole single employer pension plan issues, multi-employer, state and local government. And state and local governments are sort of governed by, administered and regulated by a different set of rules because of the different states and all those requirements. And they're very difficult to alter the terms of existing benefits for current workers. And then you get into the so-called multi-employer pension plans, and these are entities who have bound together and they have common industries and said it's better for us to operate pension plans together you now using different employers to leverage costs. Unfortunately, with those plans, they were counting on more hours, more people, a whole litany of reasons as to why they've reached a underfunded status. And that's a problem. And because now a lot of these employers are putting money into these multi-employer pension plans really just to cover the past, not necessarily future benefit accruals. So, And then, of course, you have the single employer pension plans where it's just one company with their own employees, and they're faced with similar underfunding problems, and what are they going to do? And they may have older workers, more senior workers in their company, and they're counting on that pension and don't want it frozen and don't want it changed. You have younger people who don't care about a defined benefit pension plan as much, so you're going to have two-tier benefits, and you are correct due to the economic downturn and changes in mortality and everything else that these are heavy burdens on companies' financials. And you're right, that's not going away soon, and companies can't invest their way out of this problem. Governments can't invest their way out of this problem. And the only way to do it is to manage the liability, and again, that has to happen through 
combination of plan management of the liability as well as altering the future benefit accruals under the plan. An unsolved crisis, to be sure. Yeah, and, and it's another bargaining issue on the table, right? Because an employer yeah. says, look, you want wage increases? Okay, then well, I got this pension problem, and even though we've cut back in benefits, it's costing me more and more to fund, and I got a ratio of retirees to actives, which is way out of whack. That's not even talking about health care, so that all has to be oh boy. part of this total picture. It's interesting also you mentioned the tax law and how you suggested that that might have been one of the reasons why employers employers were able to raise wages. But indeed, what I've heard, and I think most of the uh, money that corporations got as a result of the tax cuts, they funneled into stock buybacks and stuff like that. It doesn't seem to me like they put a lot of it into increased wages. I think if you read the public companies, some of them did that. Some of them did give out bonuses again to their employees. Again, same similar reason I mentioned before, one-time payments. They did things on one-time benefit improvements and things like that. If they decided they wanted to buy back stock for whatever reason, they thought it was prudent. A public company, some of them I know did that. I don't think a lot of the private companies did, but some of the public companies did use some of that as an economic opportunity, if you will. As these pressures increase across multiple sectors, what do you think is the prospect for the possibility of a general strike within a certain region or a state or across industries or whatever that would bring multiple industries to a halt? Well, the reality is this. I mean, if you think about it, not every union, but some of the unions and some locales have not gotten wage increases, may have had cutbacks in pension benefits, are being saddled more and more with health care contributions or out-of-pocket costs. All of that together, they may believe that if they don't take some radical action or do something different, that they'll always be in this bad position where they're just keeping their jobs, but they're not moving ahead. They're not gaining any ground. And if that frustration can mount and that issue becomes that paramount, whether it's in a region or an industry, for example, you could see that somebody would say, well, I'm willing to not work and not make any money because long-term I'm going to be better off and the other people who work and live here are going to be better off. And I'm willing to go on strike and do something more drastic to prove my case because I'm out of options. You push me too far. Cost sharing on health care, more restrictions on networks. I haven't gotten a wage increase. My pensions are frozen or you're cutting back on disability benefits, whatever. Workplace conditions, those are a big issue because of lack of right labor and people being forced to work overtime. All that piles on and at some point people reach a saturation point and say no more. Could that happen? Absolutely. So give us a takeaway as to what employers should be doing to react to these changes, how they should be responding on social media, how they should alter their approach in collective bargaining. Just what are some tips you think, or a tip for that matter, for employers in this situation? I think an employer, they normally do, but even so now, really have to do a lot of advanced planning of what their objectives are and what their primary issues are and considerations from their perspective. And then they need to flip the coin around a little bit and look also at the world a little bit more from the employee's perspective and try to come up with a mutually beneficial type of arrangement that can work for everybody. And that's a little bit different of an approach that they may have taken before. And we all understand cost pressures, right? We might say we only have this piece of a pie to allocate to these areas. The question is, can it be diced up differently and more effectively that is an improvement for your employees, given your concerns about not wanting to interrupt supply chain and customers, because that would be the worst thing. Also, 
obviously, the more and more I can educate employees about the business and the concerns that they have today that they didn't have three years ago of what's changed. For example, tariffs and other things like that. What's changed and what's different? So they have a better understanding and a better appreciation from that perspective. So I think engaging in bargaining now, I, I can't simply have a piece of paper or whatever and say, okay, no wage increases or no benefit improvements. We're going to play around deductibles, copays. The historical way of approaching bargaining, I think, has to be refreshed with this economic reality on both sides. So we can come to an agreement that it's a better compromising position. Some really interesting changes in the labor management landscape and some good suggestions as to how employers and labor can adjust to them. Elliot Dinkin, I want to thank you so much for helping to shine a light on this interesting topic. Thank you very much for being with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for your time. That was my conversation with Elliot Dinkin of Cowden Associates talking about the changing labor relations landscape. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any suggestions or comments on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.